Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we desire to hear from you. We know that you speak to us through your word. And so we pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of it, that you would continue to form your people, that you would shape us and mold us, that you would encourage us and convict us, and that we would be found faithful. Thank you so much, God, for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever flown first class on an airplane. I'm happy to say that I've been afforded the opportunity to fly first class just one time. Now, don't get me wrong. I've never been able to afford to fly first class. But one time, there was an instance through a sequence of events on an overnight flight from Chicago to London in which the flight was overbooked. They asked for people to take a voucher and fly out the next evening I volunteered, they gave my seat away to somebody else, but the flight didn't fill all the way. And so as they called me back forward to the platform with a grin on their faces, they said, here's your new ticket. And there it was, seat 3A. Flying first class is quite an experience. At that time, when you walk onto the airplane, they would offer you Champagne or orange juice? And as you settle into that large, comfortable leather chair, you realize just how different this experience is. I mean, back in coach, they're sitting in their own sweat. But in first class, the hostess comes by and offers you a hot, wet towel to wipe your face. Back in coach... For that six-hour flight, they would get a small bag of pretzels and a soda. But for this overnight flight in first class, they served a full three-course meal. Back in coach, there are two bathrooms for like 150 people. But in first class, there's two bathrooms for like 30 people. And back in coach, when you recline in the chair for that six-hour red-eye flight just to try to get some shut-eye, the person behind you gets really angry, and they start grunting, and they're breathing right on, their, on your face, and, and they can't even actually help it because you're practically laying your head in their lap. But up in first class, you don't even know there is somebody behind you. And something curious happens as the flight takes off. The host or hostess goes to the threshold that separates first class and those flying in coach, and she draws a curtain because they don't want the people back there to see what is happening up here. They don't want people to notice the difference in service. That curtain is like the Great Wall of China. It's like the Iron Curtain. It's like the Berlin Wall. No one is allowed to cross the threshold. No one's even able to see past the curtain. There's a clear separation in that moment between the haves and the have-nots. And the question might be raised for those that just often catch a glimpse. They might say something like, what would it take for me to be included in what they have up there? I want what they have. I want the comfort, the food, the blessing that is theirs. What would it take? How do I get there? 
You know, that's a question. That question is a question that many Gentiles could have asked when they met Jesus and heard about the kingdom and the promises of God. That's the question of the majority of the world that the world could or should ask. How can I get the blessing that they have? Who's included? How can I make sure that I'm one of them? How can I cross the threshold? And that question seems to be addressed in Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 1. So if you have a Bible, open it with me to Mark chapter 8. The Pew Bible in front of you, it's found on page 843. And starting at verse 1, this is what it says. It says, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion in the crowd. Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from afar away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and he went to the district of Dalmanitha. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven For the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Here we are again, another feeding. And similar to the first one, it would seem that the desire of the people motivated them to stay with Jesus to the point of dangerous 
hunger. It says that they had not eaten for three days. And if Jesus sends them away without food, they might collapse. Three days. That desire is profound. Many of us have a hard time getting through a church service for just like an hour or two without collapsing of hunger. But he was speaking to them in such a way that held them captive without food for three days. And it begs the question of desire, doesn't it? I think we all want to desire the Lord like that. We know we should have a desire for the Lord like that. And yet we might say, I want it, but I just don't feel it. So how do I get it? And I think a practical observation between the lines here might be helpful. How do you grow in a desire for something that you should want, but that your feelings are ambivalent toward? And the answer is very simply, you make a decision for what is right, and you trust that your desires will follow. That's what happened with these people. When they showed up because they heard Jesus was in town, many of them hadn't had access to him yet, and they thought they would see what would happen. They decided for what was right. But what ultimately happened is their desires to be with him followed. You know, someone in our extended family has this kind of history with food. He hears of a restaurant that's really good, let's say a pizza place, and he makes a choice to try it. And he likes it. He doesn't love it, but he likes it. And so the next week he orders it again. And now he really likes it. The pizza hasn't changed, but his tastes have changed. And so the following week he orders it again. And now he's hooked. And what started out as a decision, a mental decision to try something, evolved into a moderate desire, which then turned into a passion that results in ordering the same pizza from the same place two or three days a week. Friends, that can be true in your relationship with God. You don't feel anything, but you know you should want him, or maybe you should want him more than you do. So you make a decision to do the thing that pursues him. You come to church and hear God's word spoken. You don't waver. You go to your growth group and function in community, and you're there consistently. And over the course of time, you make a choice to do it again and again and again, and you might start to like it. In fact, you do because the Spirit of God is starting to speak to you through his word and through these other ordinary means. And what started out as ambivalence becomes a moderate like, and over the course of time, that moderate like becomes a deep passion. Before you know it, you would do anything to stay faithful to the Lord. You would sacrifice greatly for him. You know him. You love him. You want to serve him with your life. You, what started out as ambivalence that was met with obedience grew into intense desire. Sometimes our feelings just take a little bit of time to catch up to obedience. That seems to be what's happening here. And now the people are at a place of growing physical desperation. And this is the second feeding 
of the masses in just a few chapters in the Gospel of Mark. You might remember a handful of weeks ago, back in chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 people and women and children. Here in chapter 8, he feeds 4,000. Why does Mark include them both? I mean, we've already seen that Jesus can multiply food. So why do we need to see it again? In fact, that question has caused some to argue that these two miracles or these two feedings so close together might just be the same thing. It might be the same event told from a different perspective or a different person. But when you look at the details and what those details inform us about the meaning, it's almost impossible to come to that conclusion. Let's just contrast the two. The 5,000 people were with Jesus for one day. The 4,000 were with him for three days. Jesus ordered the 5,000 5, people to sit in groups on the green grass because there was Old Testament symbolism there. There's no green grass where the 4,000 gathered. Jesus offers a prayer of thanks for the food for the 5,000. He offers two prayers of thanks for the food with the 4,000. Jesus multiplies the food with five loaves and two fish for the 5,000. But with the 4,000, it's seven loaves and a few small fish. And finally, we see that the 5,000 had leftovers that were in 12 baskets, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. And for the 4,000, the leftovers were seven baskets, which is often used to symbolize the idea of completion. And the miracles, of course happened in two different spots among two different types of people. The 5,000 was among the Jews out in the wilderness and it was laden with imagery of Moses and Old Testament Israel. And the 4,000, well, that happened in the Decapolis among the Gentiles. And so Jesus is continuing to feed people with physical food and it points to spiritual realities of provision and it's really interesting to see now how these feedings are starting to stack up on top of each other. This is the third one he's actually done in a row. He fed the 5,000. Then you might remember in chapter 7, he fed or talked about food with a woman. With the 5,000, it says they all ate and were satisfied. With the woman, the Gentile woman, he said, let the children be satisfied first, meaning the Jews. And now, with the 4,000, it says, they all ate and were satisfied. So there's a progression that's happening here. Jesus meets the Jews, and he provides for them. He meets a Gentile woman, gives her crumbs. And now he meets 4,000 Gentiles and provides for them. You see, with the feeding of the 5,000, we see that Jesus is the bread from heaven. He is the provision of God to meet the needs of his people because he is the divine king whose kingdom has come and is sufficient to satisfy all of the needs of God's people. Jesus isn't just partially sufficient. It's not halfway sufficient. He's totally and completely sufficient to meet their needs. Even their greatest need to satisfy the deepest hunger of our lives, which is on the level of the soul. Our desire for the eternal. Our desire and our need for God. Jesus is sufficient to satisfy 
the greatest hunger of God's people. But the question that remains is what about those who aren't God's people? What about the God-haters? What about the ones whose ancestors have stood against God's people? What about those who aren't Jewish? Does Jesus have anything for them? For the Gentiles? After all, it was the children of Abraham who were promised that God would be their God and they would be his people. They were given the promised land. They were promised the blessing. They were promised the Messiah, Savior. The Gentiles were promised nothing. And they deserved nothing. And yet, we see in that little interaction in chapter 7 with the woman who seeks Jesus out to cast out the demon of her daughter, he answers her with language about food again. She's talking about the fight for the very soul of her child, and he's talking about food. And he says to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But her response indicates faith for the provision of all kinds of things. Physical, food, spiritual, food, the greatest satisfaction of the soul. She says, yet Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And the indication is the crumbs are enough. The point was that this Gentile woman knew that she didn't deserve anything from the Jewish Messiah. And her humility and faith evidenced for all to see, resulted in Jesus healing her daughter anyway. But that begs the next question, which is, would Jesus be sufficient to satisfy all of the hunger of the Jews and some of the hunger of the select Gentiles or would he satisfy the hunger of all of the Gentiles as well? Now that question might not be immediately apparent to most of us because most of us as modern readers presume that the Gentiles were always included in the blessing of God. We tend to presume that they always had an equal share in God's salvation. But in the Old Testament, that was not the case. Let me remind you, God saved the family of Jacob from the famine in Egypt, creating 12 tribes, preserving himself for a people called Israel. And he then delivered those Jews from slavery against the Egyptians. He parted the sea for the Jews. He met the Jews at Mount Sinai. He gave the Jews victory at the battle of Jericho over the Canaanites as the walls fell down. He gave the Jews victory over the Philistines as David slayed Goliath. It was the Jews who built the temple in which God would dwell and reside among them. And it was the Jews that had the great kingdom of Solomon. And it was to the Jews that the prophets came to foretell of the Messiah that was come. It was certainly not a given that the Gentiles would be included in anything or saved from anything. And so 
you might start seeing and thinking just how big of a deal it is for those who aren't Jewish. Food critic Paul Grinberg set out to eat at the world's top 100 restaurants. That sounds like a project I'd like to be invited on. For those of you who are foodies, this guy is your guy. Between 2011 and 2018, he had meals at 99 out of the top 100 restaurants in the world. He traversed mountain roads, been lost in fog, snowed in, stranded. He had secured speeding tickets in Spain, France, Switzerland, and Germany. He had crisscrossed time zones and caught flights that led him to exhaustion. And yet there was one last restaurant that remained on the list. It was a small members-only sushi house in Tokyo, Japan. And it remained maddeningly out of touch for him. He had told the Wall Street Journal in 2018, I can't get into one restaurant in Tokyo. This is crazy. The problem was is that the restaurant called Sushi Saito was an eight-seat restaurant that had a private membership. Outside, outsiders either had to dine with a member or had the reservation made by a member. But tracking down that connection was not easy. So Mr. Grinberg had tapped pals at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and other investment banks. He had tried contacts at American Express and Japanese car makers and hedge funds. And yet, even among the elite, he had no luck. He said he can't understand it. To reach his top 100 goal, other restaurants and chefs around the world had gone out of their way to accommodate him by staying open after hours or squeezing him into crowded and fully booked rooms. He documented the meals on Instagram where he also begged for the hookup. Can anybody get me in to number 100, Sushi Saito? And then in 2019, it finally happened. Paul Grinberg hit number 100. He was able to have lunch in Tokyo at Sushi Saito. But it wasn't the connections that got him there. He couldn't buy a pass or influence his way into the table. The restaurant owner had to come to him. Similarly, we don't get into God's presence by our own connections or influence. There's no sneaking into the kingdom. No back door to the presence of God. God has to come to us and it's based purely on his grace in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when you think about the history of how God engages the world, it's a pretty big deal at this point that this Jewish Messiah is starting to engage the Gentiles, because it could be, it could result in good news for some and bad news from others. I mean, if Jesus is the king, but he's 
only the king of the Jews, that's not good news for you, Gentile. If Jesus is ushering in his kingdom, and it's a kingdom where he rids the people of all demonic oppression, and he heals sickness and disease, and where sin is forgiven, it's a really depressing reality when you realize that you can't be a citizen of that kingdom if you're a Gentile. If Jesus actually has the power over death, but there isn't any indication that that incredible saving power is a possibility for you, then it's incredibly sad to be a Gentile. Those things might sound scandalous to us because we thought that Gentiles were included in the blessing all along. We thought we were entitled to God's favor. However, we weren't. And so here in this story, why do we have two miraculous feedings on top of each other? Because we see that with the coming of King Jesus, he doesn't just satisfy the Jews. And he doesn't just give crumbs to the Gentiles. Jesus actually gives us a feast as well. He takes seven loaves and a few fish. He blesses it. He sets it before the people. And it says in verse eight, and they ate and were satisfied. Jesus satisfies the deepest needs of the Gentiles as well as the deepest needs of the Jews. And there's ample supply. The number of baskets left over are seven. It would seem that seven is a number that God uses to indicate perfection or completion. Throughout the Bible, we see that again and again. There's six days in which God created the world and he rested on the seventh, creating a Sabbath and thus a complete week. Elisha told the man to wash his body seven times in the Jordan River to be healed in 2 Kings 5. There are seven spirits of God mentioned in Revelation, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, and now seven baskets left over for the Gentiles. God's ingathering of the nations to himself is perfect. The kingdom of God is expanding as Jesus goes throughout his mission, and it will only be complete when there are both Jews and Gentiles in the kingdom. The provision extends to all kinds of people, and that is really good news for this Gentile. And it's really good news for you. Jesus satisfies the greatest need of all people, even people like you. The scene shifts. Jesus gets into the boat back into a Jewish area where the Pharisees are waiting for him and they're trying to trap him again. They were requesting a sign. And to be clear, he had already done plenty of signs that they had seen and heard about. But again, they were claiming that if they just see one more sign, then maybe they'll believe And he sighed deeply in verse 12 in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? 
Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to them. And he left them and he got into the boat again and he went to the other side. Their desire for a sign is standing in direct contrast to the Gentiles. They want to see a sign and then potentially believe. The Gentiles had believed to the point of hunger, even hunger unto passing out. And only then did Jesus actually give them the sign and fed them. One is genuine desire. The other is cynical questioning. Their desire for the sign was actually an indicator of their hardness of heart and their unbelief. And what we see is that when people don't respond to Jesus' revelation of himself, he is patient, but he will ultimately turn his back on them and get in the boat and leave. And that's a good warning for you and for me as Jesus continues to show himself to you. So they get into the boat and they go over to the other side. But as they go, we see that the dialogue points us back to all the things that just happened. You know, when you have kids that go through growth spurts, it's really quite comical to see the eating habits and desires and needs that they have. Many of you have kids, you know this. And parents find themselves asking themselves the question, are you hungry again? And sometimes that question comes multiple times a day. Like, I know that I'm this big and you're this big and you have eaten twice as much food as I have today. I have no idea where it's going. Are you hungry again? Likewise, it would be comical to see the next interaction between Jesus and his disciples about food and bread and eating Again, it would be comical, except for the reality that the conversation reveals. Jesus is warning them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He's giving them a spiritual warning. But these guys are just thinking about food (laughs) and the material need in front of them. And so leaven in the Bible is often another word for yeast. It's a symbol of the spreading of evil. Just as yeast affects the whole loaf of bread, so does evil spread and affect those who engage it. And so the leaven of Herod is the leaven of pride and self-sufficiency. The leaven of the Pharisees is the cynical questioning of the heart and self-righteousness. And the cynical hardening of the heart is like a cancer. It spreads throughout the body. It's like mold that creeps through the walls of your damp basement. It's like a proliferation of bugs or plague that takes over fields of crops. This sort of hardened unbelief, cynical questioning of Jesus is poisonous in its nature. And he's warning them about this. But the disciples are just thinking about food. (laughs) Are hungry. So it says in verse 16, they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have you eyes, having eyes do not see and having ears do not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves of 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. And 
for the seven loaves of the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Jesus expects this type of hardness from the Pharisees, but not his own disciples. I mean, they were there. They actually ate the bread. They'd seen the provision and the satisfaction of Jesus, not once, but twice. And not actually even just twice. They'd seen it three times, if you count the interaction with the Gentile woman. And they still don't get it. Still don't get the fact that Jesus is the one who satisfies the greatest need of all people, even them. And so let's just make three quick observations. How could they still not get it? Jesus says it's because their hearts are hard as well. And there is a familiarity that can lead to a hardness of heart. And that's a good warning for me and for you. In some ways, they're like the Pharisees. They're familiar with the things of God, just like the Pharisees are, and that led to their hardness. But they're not like the Pharisees who are seeing new things to them and, and things they don't believe. They're the opposite. They're seeing the things of Jesus and hearing him speak daily. And they're growing comfortable in the familiarity that actually leads to a hardness of heart. There's a good reminder for those of you who have access to spiritual things all the time, including me. Maybe you grew up in the church and you might be tempted to think to yourself, oh, I've heard this all before. You feel like you've got nothing left to learn. Familiarity is actually breeding hardness. Or perhaps you've been part of a Christian family. Your parents were believers and you think, I've experienced Christianity my whole life. And now you don't have any, left, any room left for God to do something powerful and maybe even surprising to you. Or maybe you're just pretty good at all the areas of your life right now and you've fallen into that old, old trap of depending upon yourself instead of, instead of depending upon Christ to meet your needs. But be careful of familiarity. Your ultimate satisfaction will be found nowhere else. Jesus satisfies the greatest need of all people, even you. I think another observation is that spiritual nurture takes time and repetition. How do we learn something and adopt it into our daily practice? Well, we learn information but then we usually have to experience something and often experience it multiple times before it sinks in. This is certainly the case with the disciples. Miraculous feeding in which they participated in the handing out of the food and they're still wondering where they're going to get their food. They didn't get it. But Jesus doesn't send them away. He teaches them he corrects them. He nurtures them spiritually. And he will do the same for you. The third observation 
is that remembering is an important part of perseverance and growth. Jesus says to them in verse 18, having eyes do you not see and ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? How can you not remember what you saw, what you experienced? Remembering is the key, a key, to perseverance and growth. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel was told to remember. They were told to remember all the Lord had done for them. They were charged to remember the commands of God, the works of God, the miracles of God, the deliverance of God, and the person of God. They were called to remember. And in the book of Judges, you might remember in the Old Testament, the people strayed away from God. And it says explicitly they did so because they did not remember. And as a result, when they didn't remember, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And here Jesus calls his disciples to remember. Remember what you just saw the Lord do. Remember what you experienced as he did it. And let the remembrance inform the way you engage in your present reality. Friends, we're no different. It's so easy to forget. It's so easy to be short-sighted. It's so easy to live for the moment. It's so easy to be captured by the tyranny of the urgent, to give away or give way to momentary desires or concerns. And one of the ways that you persevere is to remember. And so as we conclude this morning, I want to charge you. Remember. Remember what the Lord has done for you. Remember the way that he saved you. Friends, remember those unique experiences you've had of his provision in your life. Remember those times when his presence was manifest among you. Remember the gospel and apply it to yourself every day. And remember that you could seek satisfaction in all kinds of places and all kinds of ways. But remember that Jesus is the one that satisfies the greatest need, not just for some types of people, but for all people. You know, one of the ways that we remember, that God commands us to remember as a community, is we remember those realities by taking the Lord's Supper together on a regular basis to remember Christ crucified. And so as we turn our attention now to that, I would encourage you to use this time after we sing one song to remember and let that remembrance bolster your faith.